Welcome back to the program. In the 1960s, anger was a powerful motivator in civic discourse as we protested, marched, and fought, and found new ways to understand relationships. Back in 1976, Howard Beale told us to get up and get angry. In 1985, my guest, Dr. Harriet Lerner, explained how anger was a signal, an early warning system, about issues in our relationships among women and arguably writ large. Today, anger is even more complex. Anger globally, domestically, and intimately. As such, the solutions are far more difficult to achieve. Dr. Harriet Lerner, who has since 1985 written extensively about fear and intimacy and connection, now talks again about the issue of anger in the reissue of her book, The Dance of Anger. Dr. Harriet Lerner is a relationship expert, renowned for her work on the psychology of women and family relationships, She served as a staff psychologist at the Menninger Clinic for more than two decades and currently is in private practice. She's a distinguished lecturer, workshop leader, and psychotherapist and has written numerous articles and books. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Harriet Lerner here to talk about The Dance of Anger, A Women's Guide to Changing the Patterns of Intimate Relationships. Harriet, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Great to have you here. When you think back to the way relationships were, the way anger was in relationships back in 1985 when this book originally came out, and then look at it today, what's changed? What hasn't changed? What's changed is that today women have more of a sense of legitimacy for their anger and protest. What hasn't changed is that we still get stuck with anger in two predictable ways as old as time, which is either we avoid anger and conflict at all costs, we give in, we go along, we don't rock the boat, or we do the opposite, we get angry with ease. But getting angry is getting nowhere or even making things worse. So we're caught up in endless cycles of fighting, complaining, and blaming that go nowhere. And that has not changed. One of the things that we're seeing today is that there's a real disparity between couples that have high education and those that don't. And that among those with a higher education, the divorce rate is far, far lower. What does that tell us about anger, about intimacy, and about how these issues can and can't be resolved? I believe it tells us that privilege makes all of life easier and that not having education and privilege brings more stress and anxiety. And when you have anxiety and stress, we, we all get fight-flighted, meaning it just takes a little bit of stress and people will either have a flight response, we distance, we cut off, we stop talking about things that matter, or we have a flight response, or we have a fight response, meaning we very quickly get polarized, we divide into two opposing camps, we get overfocused on what the other party is doing wrong and underfocused on our own creative options to move differently. So if you're looking at couples with money and 
privilege and education, you're looking at couples who presumably have less stress. Now, that said, that said, life is one thing after another for all of us. So any couple, no matter how privileged or how mature, given enough stress, we will get stuck in too much intensity or too much distance, which is why I love Mary Carr's definition of a dysfunctional family. She defines it as any family with more than one person in it. (laughs) So true. Talk about the way in which anxiety is, in fact, the core, the root of, of anger, essentially, and that anger becomes the outward manifestation of that anxiety. Sometimes anger is nothing more than an automatic response to anxiety. And we all know that, you know, like if I'm having an anxious day, if I'm having a low self-esteem day, I might come home and in a rat-a-tat way get focused on my husband in a critical way and be entirely obnoxious, etc. And it is simply a reflexive response to anxiety where, again, it's a fight-flight response to simplify it, that we're either going to distance or we're going to fight and blame. And that's what anxiety does. On the other hand, anger also is a very, can be a very productive response to a real problem. Anger can signal a real problem in a relationship. And just like the pain, um, for example, just like getting burned, we learn to take our hand off the hot stove, the pain of our anger can preserve the very dignity and integrity of the self, whether we're talking about an intimate relationship where our anger can inspire us to say something like, this is what I think, this is what I believe, this is what I will and will not do, these are the things I can no longer tolerate. and and still feel good about you and me and the relationship. So anger can be useful in that sense at a personal level. And the same thing at the political level, if you look at the civil rights movement, the women's movement, and other movements, it can be anger that inspires oppressed and marginalized groups to say enough and to join together collectively as as a force to be reckoned with. So... Anger is often just an automatic response to anxiety and also is a signal that something may really need to change. In that sense, is there a fundamental difference between intimate anger and public anger? I don't see the differences as much as I see the similarities In both cases, intimate anger and looking at the broader political economic system where you see the same polarities, the same dividing up into camps, the same effects of anger where there's a steep drop in cooperation and the capacity to listen and the ability to see 
few sides of an issue or better yet, six or seven sides, the effects of anger and the mismanagement of anger, as I see it, are the same. Whether we're talking about a couple, a family, a work system, the societal system, it is so difficult to get one person or group to really calm down and limber up their brain and instead of blaming the other person or group, think creatively about our own options to move differently and de-intensify a situation. Why is it so difficult for any of us in intimate relationships and certainly in, in the larger framework also that we've been talking about to respect differences, and and are we getting better at that in some ways as as younger generations come along? In the dance of anger, I actually speak a lot about the challenge of respecting differences. It is one of the largest of all human challenges in the world, and also, for example, in a marriage or between a mother and daughter or generations, and. Any relationship that's good, that's mature, requires a profound respect for differences. I have a great cartoon up in my consulting room at work here in Lawrence, Kansas, where I live. And the cartoon shows a dog and a cat in bed together. And the dog is looking morose and reading a book called Dogs Who Love Too Much. And... And the cat is saying, I'm not distancing, damn it, I'm a cat. And it's really a wonderful cartoon about lightening up um, around differences because in intimate relationships, um, we are different. We see the world through the filter of our uh, unique family history, our culture, our color, our uh, generation, our sibling position, birth order, you name it. And seeing the world through a different filter doesn't mean that one person is right and the other person is wrong. What happens with anger is that people um, get over-focused on trying to change and fix the other person to think and believe just the way we do. Why do we get so hung up on this idea of thinking, and you'd think we'd have learned as a species by now, this idea of thinking we can change someone else? We don't learn very well as a species. We're more on automatic pilot as a species, which was very useful when the wolf was at the door. And when the wolf is at the door, you know, you have to flee or freeze or fight. You know, it's not a time to, oh, the wolf is at the door. I think I'll calm down and limber up my brain and get creative here. Um, Today's problems require calming down, getting a grip on your own reactivity, being able to listen, and Humans do not learn very well from experience. You know, it's very interesting because even rats in a maze will vary their behavior if they hit a dead end even a couple of times. 
in this regard, humans don't behave as intelligently as laboratory animals. So if you're in a relationship and you're doing something that doesn't work, like you're pursuing a distant partner, you're over-functioning for an under-functioning person, meaning you're giving advice, you're bailing that person out, you're in a fix-it mode. Um, Whatever you're doing, if it's not working, do humans stop and do something different? Not when we're angry or intense. I mean, people will keep doing the same thing for at least one lifetime. So... That's normal. Now, the fact it's normal doesn't mean it's good for us. And the challenge is, of course, we have to lower our reactivity, use the thinking creative part of our brain, and do new steps when the old pattern is just bringing us pain. Is part of it the reality, and again, you would think literature and the arts would teach us this after a long enough period of time, that, that we are who we are at a certain point, that we can certainly change our behaviors, but we're not going to change who we are or change who someone else is. The, the interesting thing is sometimes what seems like a very small change, but a change of our own self because we can't change the other person. You know, that's a, it's a cliche, but also a deeply, uh, a deep truth, as cliches tend to be, that the only person we can change is ourselves. And interestingly, sometimes a seemingly small change that um, someone can dial down the criticism or someone can overcome their defensiveness and practice wholehearted listening or someone lightens up about differences or someone is able to, for the first time, take a real bottom line in their relationship where their core values, beliefs, and priorities are no longer negotiable under relationship pressures. When someone makes a substantive change and can maintain it over time, the dance can't continue as usual. The old pattern cannot continue as usual. So while it takes two people to get into trouble, it takes only one person to actually make things a whole lot better. And if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't write my books. I wouldn't be a therapist. (laughs) Does that require, though, in order to make those behavioral kinds of changes, a certain underpinning of core values and core ideas that that we need to, to launch from? Well, sometimes the person who really has their motor running for change and it's going to make the best use of therapy or a book or, you know, the good advice of, of their sister or whatever. Often when people are in enough pain uh, that, that the status quo is no longer tolerable, that they gather the courage and motivation to do something different. 
So I, I think the people who make the most use of a book like The Dance of Anger or the most use of therapy, um, change is always difficult. The devil you know is always better than the devil you don't know. People sometimes will make a change, like you say, out of their core values and beliefs, and sometimes they'll make a change because the status quo is is no longer something that they can live with. What impact has the speeded up nature of modern life had on, on anger and on these issues that you talk about? Well, to take to pluck out one simple thread in that complicated question you asked me about modern times, my mind went to email, <laughs> and uh, which email was not there when I first wrote The Dance of Anger. And I have a rule as a therapist, um, and I've also written about it, to never process an emotional issue on email. And I cannot tell you how many relationships I see go downhill because someone not only decides to write to their sister or mother or whatever on email, you know, to process what went wrong, but they also write a long email, and um, which of course only makes the other person defensive and hit the delete button because when people are being criticized, they do not take in much information. It's better to say what you have to say in three sentences or less and leave a little space. And of course, saying it's shorter is very difficult when we're angry. When we're angry or intense, we overtalk things or we don't speak at all. So with the technology, just taking email alone, you know, the, the technology gets people into trouble when they're not picking up the phone, they're not talking face-to-face. Email is often misread. The tone comes across as harder. And uh, so I would say when I think about modern times, that's just one example of technology getting relationships in trouble, especially when people are angry, you know, and they write these, they write a treatise you know, an email treatise to the other person documenting all their points. It's a great recipe for relationship failure. Can it also be a positive thing because it takes the face-to-face aspect of the conflict away and arguably could be more rational? Well, everything is a mixed bag, including email and technology. So I don't want to simplify it by saying, you know, this is not a good thing. And email can be a good thing, uh, although when something is really important, I encourage people to buy a card and write things in a card and actually put a stamp on it, you know, address it and go to the post office, a unique activity. Um, Email can be useful if you're just saying something like, you know, I felt a lot of tension over the visit and... um, I've been thinking about my part in that, and I hope we can chat about it when I see you, or a simple apology on email. When you try to criticize or correct people on email, 
I would say that does not go well. If you want to criticize somebody and you feel you can't do it face-to-face, well, then don't do it. Wait till you have another opportunity face-to-face and, you know, it comes up. The other Mm -hmm. aspect of modernity is how little time we have to deal with all of this, to process all of this, that the demands on our time are such that there really is not time except in a level that ups the anxiety level sometimes. People do operate in a time famine, and it's quite remarkable. You know, when they study married couples, how little time, if any, maybe five minutes at best, people set aside for schmoozing. You know, not a time to complain or the to-do list or talk about worries about the kids or whatever. And we do operate in a time famine, which actually um, is one of the reason that one of the reasons why I write skinny books, <laughs> which answer the question, you know, what do I do? Because when people are in pain, they're not going to read or make use of a great big fat theoretical book, usually. And, you know, obviously, when you're speeding through the day and you have too much to do, um, it's, it's a challenge, and it's a challenge worth taking on to think about who are the people who really matter to you, you know, as opposed to all those peripheral circles that mm-hmm. you're, you know, on time with Facebook and... <laughs> Um, and so on, and email to think about the people who matter most and really consider your core values and priorities around relationships and put them first. I mean, that, that's a huge challenge in modern life. Mm-hmm. And I also encourage people today to have rules around cell phone usage in their relationships. I'm like the, people call me the cell phone police, you know, like no cell phones, you know, when you're at my house and turn them off and, you know, leave the room if you have to take a call. And my husband and I have rules, no cell phone usage when we're preparing meals, when we're talking, when we're, you know, the cell phones are off, out of sight. And, you know, it's sort of amazing. I'm waiting for someone to write a really good Emily Post book on iPhones and and cell phones, because it amazes me. You know, I'll be walking with a friend that I rarely see, and she'll answer her phone five times to say, I can't talk to you now. I'm walking with Harriet Lerner. I'll call you back. You know, now, why does she have to answer the phone? Why do we feel we have to be in constant connection all the time? of course we won't have time. And of course we won't be centered in our relationships. Of course, the other side of that is that, and and people have tried to make this case, that, that being in contact all the time, that having that ability lowers the anxiety level in some respects. I don't believe so. I, I believe it, it lowers the anxiety in the short run and makes leaves people with more underground anxiety in the long run, you know, that they always have the cell phone on, that their kid can call them anytime. 
Um, again, everything is a mixed bag. But I, I think that technology has made intimacy in some ways easier and in some ways is problematic. And I guess we can say that every life choice, you know, is a, is a mixed bag. But going back to, you know, talking about the Dance of Anger and modern times is that I stick with my position that when you write an angry email, don't press send. What about people that define themselves by their anger? And I think we all know those people that, that, that sort of revel in the sense of being angry. Well, people who have a constant amount of anger and vent it inappropriately actually, of course, suffer as deeply as people who can't get angry at all. And really, another way to think about people who go around chronically angry is what my mother used to say to me a long time ago growing up in Brooklyn, you know, when we would come across these rude um, people whose anger was sort of spilling over in the supermarket line, you know, she would say to me afterwards, you know, what an unhappy person. You know, that's an unhappy person. And there's truth in that simple uh interpretation that when a person doesn't have a platform of self-worth to stand on and when they are chronically stressed and they are not valued um, by the people around them or the world around them, that a manifestation of that is the sort of always angry, irritable person and one can see that, I, I would see that as a barometer of the level of anxiety um, and also shame, which can be seen as the anxiety of not being good enough, not being worthy, that that slips into anger very quickly. Finally, talk a little bit about how men and women deal with anger differently. We, well, I guess most clearly when people couple up, and this is a generalization. You know, I am not a Mars-Venus person. Uh, humans are much more alike than, than different. When people couple up and, and stress hits, I more frequently see men manage the, their own emotional intensity by distancing and stonewalling and removing themselves from the relationship. And I'll more frequently see women manage the intensity by moving toward the other person, wanting to process it, getting more critical. And as I describe in the dance of anger, it, these are two different styles. One is not better or worse than the other. But the problem is the dance. So the more the man distances and withdraws, the more the woman is going to pursue and go after him. And the more that she pursues in an intense or critical way, the more he distances. So that's the problem is more the pattern 
of the distance and pursuer than it is that, you know, one is better or, or one way is worse. So I do see that, that difference um, in marriage. And it's interesting. Your question reminds me of a greeting card <laughs> that's pretty popular. And it shows um, th- th- what the card says in the front of the card. It says, if a man is alone in the forest with no woman to criticize him, is he still a schmuck? So men and women have quite a different reaction to that card because men will tell me, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. You know, I walk in the door and there's, you know, this list of criticism. And the, the women will say, well, wait a minute. If, you know, if the poor guy feels so beleaguered by criticism, why doesn't he do what he says he's going to do? Why... Why doesn't he let my voice and my legitimate complaints affect him? And and both are true. You know, both sides, you can empathize with both sides. So I would say that the biggest distance is, the biggest difference, with many exceptions, is men will rely more on distancing and women will more move toward the emotional center um, and aren't as conflict-avoidant. Men can be very conflict-avoidant. Dr. Harriet Lerner, the book is The Dance of Anger, A Woman's Guide to Changing the Patterns of Intimate Relationships. It's just been reissued by William Morrow. Harriet, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. My pleasure. It's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 